0: Good morning. Please, would you remain standing as we read God's Word? My name's Dara, and I'm going to be reading today's sermon scripture from Matthew 21, 1-17. If you'd like to read along in your Blue Bibles on your pew, you can find the passage on page 482. That's 482. The triumphant entry. who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, I have the good pleasure of introducing Pastor Mike this morning. Michael Kelly. The Kellys have been in Seattle since 1995 when Mike was called as a lead pastor of Green Lake Presbyterian Church, which is now Trinity Church in Seattle. Mike led that congregation for 19 years and is still on staff as an associate pastor, but he and his wife, Sandy, now lead the Northwest Church Planting Network, which he founded in 2001. 2001. God has used the ministry to plant over 20 churches in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. Before Seattle, the Kellys planted New Life Church in Indiana. They have three children and four grandchildren all in the Seattle area. And Mike and I have gotten to know each other a little bit over the past few weeks, and I did just want to say, as we were kind of stepping into this season, elders and chatting, we were like, what to do about Easter? And then God just graciously provided us a new friend in Mike Kelly, who not only raised his hand immediately, for Easter, but also said he would do Palm Sunday with us and has been praying earnestly for our church ever since. So if you'd give Mike a warm welcome.
2: Thanks. So good to be here. Uh, The reason I was eager to help in any way I can is that ICON is an important part of God's work in the city, and people beyond this congregation know that. I am um, certainly have been aware of it and thankful for it. And um, you, you've entered into you know, a very challenging season. But I want you to know that um, the reputation of this church in the city is worth continuing, brings God honor. And um, there's many people like me outside of your orbit that um, are praying and want to see renewal, recovery, um, revival here. So I keep, keep the faith, right? Keep the faith. Let God do um, what He will here in this congregation. And for those of us who get to show up on Sunday or otherwise be part of it, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to, to do that. So I'm going to pray. Thanks for reading. Uh, Dara, I think, is your name, right? Thanks for reading. And uh, Cal, it's been fun to meet you after all of our emails. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you, please, to um, tell us who you are. Show us um, who we are. What have you done? What you have for us? Untangle our confusions and our expectations, and let us receive you as you come to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people that, that study these sorts of things, and as you know, there's a lot of sociologists and demographers who Look into what's happening and what's going to happen. Um, they predict and uh, I'm not one of those, but I've read them they predict that 30 million young adults will leave the church between now and 2050. Now we can argue about those numbers, but I tell you that I've been on the ground here in Seattle for uh, working on 28 years, and uh, you know I've seen I've seen people leave the faith. And it's heartbreaking. What I find interesting about Easter is that the whole message of Easter, curiously, was for the church, which had no clue about what was going on. The the first community to be evangelized was the disciples. And what we have in, in this passage is Jesus rehearsing Easter so people would understand what to expect from him on earth. Because what we have, tragically, um, is an entire city full of the people of God who lost their faith within six days. That's what happened at Easter from Hosanna to crucify him. You know, that's just part of what it is. It's always been part of the faith to start strong, to advance, and then to stumble with wounds and wondering about things. And um, what What I'm mostly saddened by when I talk to young or old folks who are um, trying to struggle with the faith and maybe wondering if it's really true is that there's a lot of real wounds, there's a lot of fair doctrinal questions that are hard, but um, what breaks my heart is that in, in maybe almost every case, they're giving up on the wrong savior, they're giving up on the Savior of their expectations and not the Savior of their salvation. And that's exactly what happens in the triumphal entry. Jesus frames this whole day, and if, don't look at it now because I'm preaching to you, but you can, go find the, you can go find the parallel passages, right? You maybe look at it a little. Um, Jesus is, is enacting, rehearsing the same kind of thing is going to happen on Easter so as people would understand. And we're going, to look at, we're going to look at all of those. Let's look at the parallel first and then we'll draw some applications from the announcement and the adoration and everything else that follows. So, um, okay, maybe take your phone out and hit that link, Callison, if you really want to. But let me just review what's going on here. Um, this, the two-thirds of the Gospels are consumed with Holy Week. This was the moment that Jesus came for. And he's announced, he's adored, and he is opposed, and then he reigns in this chapter, just like we're going to see in chapter 28 next week. He's announced, he's adored, he's opposed, and he's going to reign in that chapter. There's, there's actually a, a number of linguistic links between chapter 21 and, and chapter 28, but I just want to point out one. Remember uh, when the reading, when the whole city was stirred? That's the word, by the way, we get seismic from. The same thing happens when the, tomb, the stone in front of the tomb was rolled away, the earth shook. It's, it's the same term. The prophets promise, Zechariah, the angel proclaims. The crowds cheer, the women worship. The leaders confront, and then the leaders conspire. That happens in Matthew 28. And then infants praise in this chapter at the end, and then the disciples proclaim to the whole world in the last part of it. But then finally, there's this interesting turn in this chapter that's easy to miss. Um, Jesus withdraws. After disrupting the city, he leaves. After he rose from the grave, what did he do? He left. And he left us with a lot of questions. The implications are that we need to see that Jesus um, has orchestrated this entire day to make a point. To help us understand what to expect from him in the world as he's saving it and then also the world as he'll leave it. Incomplete and still broken. We have to understand that or Jesus will always disappoint and Christianity will disappoint all along the way with it. Hey, I've I'm, I'm been in the church for a long time. The church hurts people. You know what? I've been a pastor for a long time. I have hurt people. Um, so there's plenty of reasons to be wounded by the church, but, but you'll leave the church if you don't understand that Jesus lived through that and understood it and explained to us by his life and example and teachings why we can still trust him in the midst of it. So let's take a look, first of all, at this announcement. And I want to emphasize um, that Jesus is in charge of this whole day. Now, this is really remarkable because there's no other point in all of the prophets uh, in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, where any prophet stands up and says, hey, by the way, this whole thing is about me. And there's no other episode where some prophet or king says, oh, all those promises, let's just coordinate them so no one can be mistaken that I'm the one they've all been waiting for. But that's exactly what Jesus does. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples and set the whole thing up. That's what he's doing. I want you to see how Jesus has made... Palm Sunday, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, he has made it about himself. And the whole thing is designed by the appointment and the providence of God and um, the purpose of Jesus Christ. He sends these two guys out to find this donkey and his colt that he knows will be there. And then he gives them like the uh, Jedi mind trick to the owner. Just like, hey, when he says something, just say the Lord needs them. And the guy will say, okay. And, um, and it all works. And Jesus, understand, is the actor in this. He's created the scene. These Israelites would have understood, especially as their heightened um, sense of redemptive history is um, focusing in on the Passover which is coming, they would have understood there's a guy on a donkey they would have recollected this passage that's mentioned in our scripture. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. And that's the, really the beginning of how Jesus who orchestrates this whole thing starts to hint for those careful listeners and careful readers, he starts to hint that, hey, something's happening here that you anticipate but that you probably um, don't understand. So if you look at the passage in Zechariah, what's happened is Israel has been destroyed by their enemies, they've been sent into exile, And the the passage makes all manner of promises uh, before this. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and he shall rule from sea to sea, and the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because the blood of my covenant, I will set prisoners free from the waterless pit and then he speaks of the king coming on a donkey. Now think of the absurdity of that. That was almost 500 years before this event. So let me ask you, when are the chariots going to be cut off? When's the battle bow going to be cut off? When's Jesus going to speak peace to the nations? What Jesus is cluing us into is that his work is going to be slow, and it's going to start in an unexpected place, but it's going to start in the deepest place where we need the kind of peace that we really need. Now, if you are a first century um, Israelite, um, you, you might be aware, if you're, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, and it's great if you're not, I went to seminary, I had literally read 20% of the Bible when I showed up for my first day, which is not recommended, So it's okay if you don't know, but what's happening is Israel is an oppressed people that living under the power of a brutal um, regime of Roman bloody authority. Rome kept peace by killing everybody who didn't want to be peaceful. That's basically what Pax Romana is. And so when they're thinking about a king and they're thinking about this passage, when they're thinking about their Messiah, they're thinking, oh, great, this is it. Taxation is over. Profaning the temple is over. The the dominion of the nations is over. The son of David is here. He's going to take care of us. So to plus pause here in this story, um, what, what do you need God to do in your life in order to have peace? You have that list. I have a list. I have a list of things that, in my lesser mind, I'm like, I, if I don't get these seven to 10 things, I'm not going to be happy. I won't have peace. They're about my children, they're about my grandchildren, they're about my ministry, you know, whatever. You've got these. What do you need? These people had that list too. And what we're going to find out this day and then this week is that Jesus did almost none of it. And he certainly didn't do the big part of it Which is to conquer Rome and send Pilate and Caesar and everybody else running to the hills. And that is a big part of the Christian life. The Christian life is what do you do with the stuff that God doesn't do? What do you do with that? How does it weigh on you? Do you understand what's happening? Do you understand God's intent? Because I would imagine in this room, there's 10,000 prayers that have been offered from souls in this room that have not been answered. Or have they been answered? I was talking to a guy in our house who was putting gutters up, and he was really wounded by the church. And he was really mad at the church. He found I was a pastor. And so I, he, I just sat in my driveway and just listened to him rail against us. And you know what? I, I didn't shut him up. I just listened to him rail. But he looked at me and goes, how many of your prayers? He was like, the guy's working for me, right? So how many of your prayers have been answered? And I wasn't trying to be flippant, but um, the first thing that came out of my mouth was all of them. And he goes, all of your prayers have been answered? And I just looked and said, yeah, I, I got a lot of no's. <laughs> um, and it changed the guy. I wish I could say he returned to the church and renewed his faith, but it did change. The This was a long conversation. That the next 45 minutes of the conversation were different. But what happens here is that this king, who came not on a steed to conquer, but humbly on a donkey, adored by the people. He was entering into a world that he knew he would disappoint all their expectations. But they adored him anyway. So that's the announcement and the confusion that it causes us. Let's look at the um, adoration and some of the confusion that's implied in it. The disciples went and did as Jesus told them and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and they cut their branches from the trees and spread it on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's enthusiastic. It's as genuine as it can be um, but it's also uh, has in it an inherent, short-sighted misunderstanding about the implications of all this, which, by the way, is um, more true than we want it to be about all of our praise this morning about Jesus. There there is, uh, no matter how clear your faith is, no matter how doctrinally sound your vision of Christ is, and mine too, I mean, doing this for a living being a professional Christian as it were you know that's not a thing by the way but it's kind of a thing Um, that doesn't that doesn't mean that my heart doesn't wrap around and take over my expectations of Jesus I just do it from the pulpit and I praise him for years um, without really understanding what his intention is what his design is for my life, my ministry, my family, my children, my grandchildren, my friends. And that's what we bring in, and that becomes the measure by which we decide whether Jesus is working, whether Christianity is fulfilling or disappointing. It's a really dangerous place to be because we're going to see where he wants us to land before he leaves. Basically, he wants us to land as broken people with the hearts of children. That's how you sustain a Christian life. That's a preview. You'll get it about 15 minutes from now. But but listen, you get a hint of that in this passage, the confusion of their adoration. They ask, this is around verse 10, and when he answered, the whole city was stirred. We saw that earlier, we mentioned that earlier. And they asked this question embedded, who is this? You're always asking that question. You. I'm going to assume you know the Son of God uh, incarnate, born of the Virgin, lived a sinless life. Maybe you don't. Maybe and so. This is who Jesus is, okay? And that's cool that you're here. Um, died for our sins, rose again. But but there's still some who is this in the heart of every Christian? Like, meaning, what are the implications of His glory for me and my 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 sucky job or my broken relationships or my sick child or you know fill in the blank and their answer is is true but falls short and that's also uh important for us um he's the prophet but if you're exploring Christianity you need to know that Jesus is the capital T prophet but he's also much much more than that and there is like a you know a sea anchor is you know something you when you're out in the middle of the ocean you want to slow your ship down it basically like a big parachute that floats in the back and keeps you from moving. There is a sea anchor um, in all of our faith that that wants to keep Christ smaller and lower and more manageable so that we can order his purposes for us. We're always asking, who is this? The demons were the only ones to know. The disciples kind of knew, but certainly got a lot wrong and seemed to have forget easily. And the crowds, not, not so much. And the crowd's not so much. And it's, it's, that's where there's a tremendous amount of confusion in our adoration. A friend of mine planted a church in Redmond, and, and this was years ago. It started in 04. So fennel wasn't a thing then. It was, more, it was more like crack. And he said to me, he goes, hey, Mike, you, you know why the devil's not using crack in Redmond, don't you? And I was like, no. And he said, because soccer is doing just fine. Because our perspective on Christianity is driven by the things that are right around us. We expect Jesus to deliver a certain kind of life, a certain kind of mental um, shalom, a certain kind of uh, personal fulfillment. These things, Jesus loves all those things. He wants those things for you. But imagine you are a metaphor for Jerusalem uh, on the day of the Pentecost. I mean, a day of, uh, of uh, Palm Sunday. He's got this contrarian purpose for us all that we're going to see over and over again so what we need to do is, is understand that Jesus established this for his whole purpose that our praise which I believe everyone who sang songs today meant them from their heart but we need to maybe not trust love God and much as we do. We need to hold humbly. We love God, and we kind of know what he's going to do, but Jesus is about to come and do something very, very different when he comes to us. He's going to establish um, his reign. So oops, let's now take a look at that. This is a prophet from Nazareth to Galilee, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. So think about think about how toxic that would feel if you were in the temple. You had been waiting for the son of David. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents through uh, oppression and exile and trial and suffering and crucifixions, thousands of crucifixions. You'd been waiting for the promised son of David to come and take care of business. And he goes where and does what? Imagine... Imagine for a moment, remember, they don't know about the resurrection yet. They don't understand who Jesus is. Imagine if this sermon turned into me trashing this whole place because you guys had screwed up everything about your church and misunderstood its foundational purposes. Remember, sometimes you've got to get back to Jesus. Like, how would people experience Jesus before the resurrection, before 2,000 years of adoration all across the globe? This is a guy that rode in on a donkey. Instead of taking care of business with Rome, instead of going to Pilate's Palace, he ends up in the outer court of the temple, and he trashes the place. He just trashes it. Now we love that he sent out the money changers and we love that it's a house of prayer. And I don't want to minimize those things but I want to maximize how we might have experienced that and here's why. Because in some measure if you follow Christ for decades he's fixing to do that in your heart. And it will not be pleasant, you will be hurt, you will be offended, you'll take umbrage, it's an old word we don't use much, but you know, the, the other word that we use I won't um, in this setting. But uh, when he reigns, he came to reign among the people of God first. And then think about what happens, Re- read the next seven chapters. Pretty much everything Jesus says in the Holy Week is, is like picking a fight with somebody. All of his parables are called judgment parables: the wedding feast, the ten virgins, the, the tenants and the land. Um, he says the seven woes on everybody. Uh, right in our next, the next thing he does in our passage, I think we're not going there today. But it like curses a tree because it's not bearing fruit out of season. Okay, that's a little odd, but. Um, So what are you gonna do with this savior who is much more tenaciously concerned with capturing your heart than you want him to be? Because that's what Jesus is doing. He wants to take them under his wing. He he longs to have them come to him and the only way to come to Jesus is in repentance and he's challenging us. His reign starts here with the church. He's announced, he's adored, he's opposed. That's why people oppose him. That's why people lost their faith in six days. We're going to look at his reign again in a moment, but now I want to think about who opposed him. Well, of course, the multitudes opposed him. Why? You know, crowd think is part of it, right? Um, Also, he cleared the temple, and everything he said all week seemed to be pointed at them and not the bad guys. So they give him, they give him what, five or six days? They give him five or six days. That should be enough. You know, we, you might have given Jesus five or six years or five or six decades, and, and the question then will become, has he given you what you wanted? Or has he disappointed you? What I found is that Jesus wanted my heart to be much more like his heart than he wanted my ministry to be like the Apostle Paul's ministry. And that was gravely disappointing for me. Because that's not what I was looking for. So you, you find out, you ask yourself, you do the reflection, like what is, Jesus has not given me all these things. He wants to speak lovingly hard things to me. Will I oppose him? Well, there's different kinds of opposition. Some of it's passive, people just bolt. Some of it's uh, groupthink crucify him. And, and some of it is uh, full on, hey man, do you hear what they're saying? They, they, at least they had the integrity, the Pharisees, to like jump right in. Do you hear what they're saying? So I would say that in, in your journey, um, I don't want you to doubt. I don't want you to confront Jesus because he is the king of kings, and, and we should probably come to him on our knees. But it's better than just walking away. And it's better than just crowd speak. At least go to him and say, what is up with with this? Now, be ready for his answer, because Jesus, he's, he loves you. He'll be compassionate, but he'll also be like, you know what? You just don't understand. You don't understand what I'm doing, and you don't understand why it will fill you with glory and peace that you can't even imagine when I'm done with it. But at least, at least go to him like that. And then we have this beautiful picture at the end. Um, so you can oppose him passively. You can oppose him by jumping in on the, like the subreddits and talking about how terrible the church is. and um, You know, the churches. Read the New Testament. It's always been this way. Like this is not a new thing. The church has always been a a hurtful mess and a beautiful place too. You can do that or at least you can say, hey, at least have the integrity of a Pharisee to say, so what is going on here? Who did you come to help? Who did you come to hurt? Why are things the same way? And your answer will be because he's got a purpose that you maybe didn't expect. That's why he rehearsed it. So um, I've been thinking all week about using a Lionel Richie illustration. And I'm like, I don't know, what's the demographic here? Has anybody even heard of Lionel Richie here? But I'm going for it because I met some people of my vintage before the service. So I know there's like two of us. But a friend of mine's sister was at, was at a wedding. And she was part of the wedding. This was years ago. And there was a guy gonna sing. Uh, He's gonna sing. Um... He's going to sing, uh, Lady, I'm not going to sing, Lady, I'm your knight in shining armor. Go look this up. It's beautiful. You need to know about Lionel Richie, by the way, <laughs> especially if you're not, if you're like, if you didn't live in the 70s, you need to know about him. It's a beautiful song. And they go, okay, here, here's when you're going to sing it. This is a rehearsal the night before. And, he, and uh, they said, you want to sing it? And he goes, I'll sing it if you want, but... But we don't need to sing it. And they're like doing like rehearsal dinner. Like, no, you don't need to sing it. So go fast forward to the wedding. Guy gets up there. He's not singing Lady by Lionel Richie. He's singing Lady by Bob Dylan. It goes like this. Lay, lady, lay. Lay across my big brass bed. It's Evidently, he says this about his dog. But he sang the whole song. The, the place was mo- either mortified or just dying of laughter. Look, you, you've got to rehearse this thing. You've got to understand what Jesus intends to do. So let's take a look at what his, what his reign is like. He cleanses the temple. So that's the first thing that he does. Jesus intends to sanctify his people. And read the Bible. There's almost no way ever to be sanctified without suffering and without obedience and without bringing your struggles to God and your disappointments in him and you I don't know how to grow in faith without that. I don't know anyone in church history who grew in faith without that. I don't know anyone in the Bible who grew in faith without that. And I'm pretty sure you and I will not grow in faith without that. It's just the way it is. And that's because we're so broken. The second thing he does is... um, heal all these broken people because after he cleanses the temple a- after he turns a temple into what it's supposed to be then everybody's heard of them that that can't walk or can't see or can't hear or whatever possessed by a demon it's maybe unlikely that a demon possessed person would have been allowed into the temple but he sure healed a lot of them then he just shows kindness and love and and my, I don't want to, if you're exploring Christianity, you might say, wow, this, this really sucks. You know, I don't know if I want to do this. There are hard parts of it, but Jesus has been so kind and tender and patient and loving with me. I couldn't recount all of that to you. And he does this. He's, he's healed me. He's comforted me. Right? Um, so that's part, of, that's part of what Jesus does. It's likely that that's the part that you and I have just like, that's the Jesus who wants to hang out with that Jesus? Raise your hand. Good church people didn't think I actually meant that. Yeah. Should he say, me and raise your hand? No. We're Presbyterians up in Ballard. We would like, you've already laughed more than they would. No, they're pretty good, but uh, we don't do hand things. The, um, so that's what we want, and, and he's truly that. But here's what I find striking. He did that for a little while. And then he left. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Because the next thing he does is he celebrates uh, children praising him. And what he's doing, is he's starting to tell you what his reign is about. Like, here's the rehearsal. This is what I can do. Purify my people. Lead them to me. Make them look more and more and sound more and more like me. And worship God with fuller, more mature hearts the next thing I'm going do is going to help them. That's going to be the hurt part. Then I'm going to help do the help part. But what I really need is small children that just believe that when the king comes, it's time to sing about it. These infants that he ordained praise from, they don't know much about Rome. They don't know too much yet about what it's like to hurt probably. They just know everybody's stoked because this guy's here and they're going to sing too. You know, Jesus said, unless you have the faith of a little child, you cannot come to me. These children will soon encrust their faith with all manner of expectations like you and I did. But right now in this passage, right here, they just take him at his word. That's the secret of holding on to faith when you're disappointed in Jesus. Let him cleanse you, let him comfort you, and then no matter what happens, just take him at his word. One more thing, though, and then we're done. We're we're landing here. Then he leaves. So imagine this he comes, it's a big deal. He just destroys the temple, um, gets in an argument with the leaders, heals some people praises little children and then he bounces and he goes to bethany which to me that whole thing sounds a lot like what's going to happen in matthew 28 it's going to turn the world upside down and then he's going to leave so here it is it's sunday night you're in jerusalem this thing just happened that we're talking about and you were there for the whole thing and you're, you were like, wow, what happened? Then you're just going home. You're like, okay. That was, wow. We're all, you know, let me stretch this metaphor. We're all living in this Sunday night. It's been 2,000 years in a lot of ways. It's not really because we have Easter, but we're all just waiting to do. Let me, let me give you, let me just remind you of one thing. He went to Bethany. Do you remember, do you remember who lives in Bethany? Mary? Martha and who else? Lazarus. So Jesus enacts this whole thing and then he goes to be with the resurrected. That's where he is now. We'll see you next week. He, he goes to the fulfillment, a little picture, a little moment, the fulfillment of his life, and he's there. He's going to come back and finish his work. But until we see that, until you see that, just be assured Jesus started something and he's continuing it. But he's with true and living life and he's going to bring you back to it if you can just hold on and not give up on him. So here's the one last thing. I'll put a back porch on the, on the porch, on the back porch. If you're struggling with your faith, if you're ready to give up, then a couple things. Reach out to a friend, preferably one who's not ready to give up. Or an elder. Or a staff member here. You, you can do that. Reach out to them. You can reach out to me, too, if you want. But I'm, you know, I don't know you that well. And just make sure you're not ready to give up on the wrong Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you, please, to... Um, Help us see who you really are and let us have faith to let you do all that you want to do and all that you don't. Amen.
0: This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources, and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all, and we are His.